good to be here with you today. What a beautiful day. It's getting warmer and a lot more humid, um, but it's still beautiful. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, humid is an understatement. Uh, it's a sauna. It's a wet sauna. Uh, well, there, there, here's, here's one thing that uh, I have observed in life, and that is that, you know, the majority of our disappointments and our troubles do not necessarily come from the problems itself, but it comes from our expectations of what we thought things would look like once we started or entered something. So I remember maybe a few years ago uh, coming into my office, a couple that had been married for over 20 years, and uh, you know they were saying to me that the marriage was in a very fragile place. Uh, the wife had more complaints than the husband. That's usually the case, and they're usually right, too. Um, and, and I was asking her, you know, what's happening? What's happening? What's going on? And she was saying, well, you know, uh, our finances are out of order. Um, I, I want to save. He wants to spend. You know, we, we, we're not on the same page when it comes to parenting our children. Um, you know, the way in which we're going about resolving conflict is, has been very unhelpful. And, and then she stops and she says, I never signed up for this. And so that took me back, and, and then I asked them, so when you guys got married some 20-some years ago, you never had that conversation of, you know, how are we going to handle our finance? How are we going to parent our children? Um, what is resolving conflict look like in our marriage? She said, no, we never talked about any of these things. See, the expectations were unrealistic, and she was faced with the problems that came crashing down on her expectations. And he had different expectations as well that hadn't been realized. But I find that that's the case whenever we start a job and, and, and we find ourselves um, a few years into it completely discontent and angry. The issue is not the problems or the coworkers that we now have, but it's the expectations that we had once we started that job. They were unrealistic. And I think that the same thing applies to the Christian life. A lot of people start the Christian life with unrealistic expectations. They, they think that the Christian life is, is going to be a life devoid of problems, that you're always going to be and, and spend and and hang out with uh, amazing, beautiful, holy saints of Christians. And, and, and let me tell you that that can't be or couldn't be furthest from the truth, okay? Uh, the more you uh, progress in this race called the Christian life, which is the metaphor that we're using for this series, the more you will find hurdles, the more you will come across mean-spirited Christians, okay? Problems within the church. Why? Because the church is composed of people that are still sinners and are imperfect. And any community that has people, okay, is a community where people hurt one another. In fact, the day you join the church, you increase the probability for conflict for all of us. 
That's just, that's just the reality. We must not have unrealistic expectations about the Christian life. And that's frankly where we find ourselves in the text today because as the Apostle Paul uh, comes to this encounter with Jesus, as he hits the ground running and begins to proclaim the gospel, he begins to face some of the hurdles that are part of the Christian life. It's not this smooth race, but it's this race that's filled with obstacles. It's filled with hurdles. So uh, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? We've been in chapter 9 for four weeks now because we really want to spend time each verse here in chapter 9. And today we find ourselves in verse 23. We're going to read from 23 through 28, and then I'm going to read verse 31. I'm not going to read 29 and 30. I'm going to jump straight to 31. We're going to close our text uh, that way today. Okay, so this is what the the text tells us. Uh, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is Saul, who is Paul. But, But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, let me say that again. But Barnabas, I'm going to say it a third time. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. So what we read here in this passage is the last days that the Apostle Paul spent in Arabia and the Middle East before he comes to Jerusalem. So it's the last days in Arabia and the first days as he returns, as he comes back to Jerusalem. Paul comes to faith in Jesus and he goes and he preaches the gospel out of Damascus. He's in Arabia for about three years, returns. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and this is where we find ourselves in the passage today. So as we think about the hurdles of, of, of the Christian life, of this race called uh, Christianity, I, I want us to think about three things, okay, today. Uh, first, I, I want us to think about uh, what are the common hurdles that we all have to face. Let's talk about them. What are they? Uh, secondly, let's talk about the benefits in the hurdles. We, sometimes we think that the, the hurdles uh, only have a negative place and connotation in our Christian life, and I want to uh, steer you away from that. I mean, they make it harder, but they have some benefits as well. And so we're going to talk about the benefits. And then lastly, and this is the most hopeful point of the sermon, uh, we'll talk about how do we overcome these hurdles. Okay, so what are the hurdles, the benefits of the hurdles, and then how to overcome the hurdles. Uh, first, let's, let's talk about where are some of the hurdles. And I listed here four. There are more than four. Um, don't be discouraged that there are more than four, but we're going to 
talk about some of the main four here that we see here in the life of the Apostle Paul that are present in our lives as well, in our journey, in our race as Christians. The first one are the, the natural hardships of life. Let me say that again, the natural hardships of life. Like I said in the beginning of the sermon, many of us enter the Christian life with this unrealistic expectation that everything is going to be well. And what I like to say is, is this, is that even though you have received a new life, you still live in the same world. So it's a new life, but it's the same world. You have changed, but the world around you is still the same until the day that Jesus comes to renew and restore all things. Until then, the world remains the same. And we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's been affected by the fall. And Christians, as every other person that has ever lived life in this earth, should not go about life with the false assumption that they are immune to pain and suffering. You, as a Christian, are as immune to pain and suffering as anyone else. As the Apostle Paul later on reflects upon his Christian race, upon his own journey towards the end of his life, we'll get to that place later, but he talks about how he was subject to shipwrecks, disasters, famine, persecutions, beatings, all sorts of horrible things happened to Paul, including as he begins to preach the gospel. As he goes out boldly pre preaching and proclaiming the gospel, he begins to experience fierce opposition. That's what we read here in this text. And so if the apostle Paul, who was probably the most important leader of the Christian faith after Jesus, had a life filled with pain and suffering, which, by the way, it was part of his calling. Do you remember the calling? See, when Paul has that encounter with Jesus, he is blinded in the road of Damascus, and he is taken to Damascus, to the house of this man. And while he's there, God speaks to another man by the name of Ananias, who's, who God says, I want you to go into the city, into the street, into the house of this man, and I want you to speak to this man by the name of Saul. And I have a special calling upon his life, and I want you to communicate that calling. And here's the calling. I want you to tell him how much he will suffer for my name. That was the calling. <laughs> I feel sometimes that was my calling too. <laughs> that was Paul's calling. And so if the apostle Paul lived a life or ran the race filled with hurdles, if Jesus lived his life filled with hurdles and obstacles. If every other leader of the Christian faith, any follower of Jesus that you read about here in the New Testament, if their life was filled with hurdles and opposition and persecutions and obstacles, what makes you and I think that our life should be devoid of them? It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's something that comes naturally. It's the whole package, guys. You can't select it. This is not a buffet, okay? You cannot select what you want. This is, it, it comes everything together. It's, it's, it's like moros, you know, like the rice and beans in there together. You cannot separate it. It's part of the Christian life because we all live in a broken world and we're all subject to all of these things, whether we're Christians or not Christians. Secondly, we have to talk about our own sin too <laughs> because it's very easy for us to uh, blame uh, the people 
in our lives. It's very easy for us to blame the circumstances. It's very easy for us to blame God for what we are going through. And it's not fair that we do all of that and don't look in and don't see our sin. And we don't see our shortcomings. And, and here's one of the things that I want you to understand here today, that one of the reasons why you're not going at a faster pace in your Christian race, one of the reasons why you are no longer focused on the goal, which is the prize, which is Christ in your life, is because there are certain patterns of sins in your life that were never addressed. There are some sins that have become comfortable to you. There is a minimization of the doctrine of sin that has happened and taken place in your life. And you have found ways to justify it, blaming others or even comparing to others. Yeah, but I'm at least not as materialistic or as greedy or as prideful or as unforgiving as that other person that I know. You found a way and those sins have found a way into your life and have become a huge hurdle because they have been unaddressed for you to keep running and racing towards the goal, which is Christ. Let me give you a few examples here. Let's say somebody sinned against you a long time ago, and you're still holding on to grudges. You have um, refused to extend forgiveness. Now, what they have done to you has been sinful, but the Bible also says that withholding forgiveness from other people, if you are a Christian and you have received the forgiveness of Christ, is also sin. In fact, we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive our debts or our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And many times you could be further ahead. Many times you could be changing the world for Jesus, but you are not because there's still those roots of bitterness deeply entrenched in your heart, which is sin. You know, John Owen, a Christian thinker uh, of many years ago, he used to say this, you either kill sin or sin will kill you. There are things in your life that you must pay attention to. You cannot expect to go against the will of God and utter disobedience to God and still accomplishes God's goals and God's purposes in your life. You have to address sinful patterns. You have to touch hidden sins. You have to uncover hidden sins in your life if you are to remove that hurdle. It's a hurdle, and you and I sometimes are the hurdle ourselves. Thirdly, here's a third hurdle, haters. Haters. Listen, you're going to have haters just because you are a Christian and you've become a nicer person. I hope you have. Uh, it does not mean that you will not have haters. You will always have haters. The Apostle Paul started his ministry with haters, and guess what? He ended his life with haters, okay? So you will always have haters. You will always have people that are questioning the work of God in you and through you. You will always have people that are belittling you. You will always have people that will criticize you, whether you're doing something right or wrong. You are going to have that no matter what. It reminds me of 
that story in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. How many of you guys read the book of Nehemiah? If you've never read the book of Nehemiah, it's a great book for you to read. But it's a book that talks about the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And after many years, God raises this man within the Babylonian empire to go back and to rebuild the city. And the first task is obviously to rebuild the torn walls of the city. And, and he comes in there. I mean, he leaves his place of comfort, right? He's, he's in the Babylonian empire. He's in America, living in America at the time. And now he's called to go back to Ukraine. Okay, think about this, to rebuild the city. He's like, man, I already got a job here. My family, my kids are in school. No, no, no. After the war, go back. So God sends him back to, you know, uh, a war-destroyed country to rebuild the wall. And as he's doing that, after all the sacrifice, after all of the efforts that he's putting through, after the lack of resources that it takes to do that work, as he's doing that, there are people that come alongside and begin to criticize and question what God is doing in him and through him. Look, Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me read a few verses. When Sambalot... Now, this is an ugly name. You probably don't know anybody by the name of Sambalot unless a parent was angry at their children when they named them uh, but, or in a bad mood. But um, uh, th- this is a name I don't want you to forget because there are many Sambalots in your life. There's many in my life. Uh, when Sambalot, the governor of Samaria, which is a neighboring town, remember uh, the text ends with the gospel going out in Jerusalem and Samaria. These are neighboring cities text that we read today. So the governor of Samaria heard that we were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And he became angry and started insulting our people. In front of his friends and the Samaritan army, he said, what is this feeble bunch of Jews trying to do? Are they going to rebuild the wall and offer sacrifices all in one day? Do they think they can make something out of this pile of scorched stones? And then here's here's the mockery beginning. Tobiah from Amnon was standing beside Sambalot and said, Look at the wall. Look at the wall they're building. Why even a fox could knock over this pile of stone. So he's doing the work after all the sacrifice. Man, he's getting heat. He's getting criticism. He's getting mockery. And we all have people like that in our lives. As God is doing his work, haters show up. There's, there's no question about it. And oftentimes, the root, and I, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand where these people are coming from, okay? Because I don't want you to give them more power than you ought to. Uh, but, you know, the, these people are motivated by jealousy. Why? They question, what happens is they are questioning God's work in you because they doubt what God has put in them. Let, let, let me explain you what this means. I believe that every single one of you is very unique to God and that God crafted you in a very unique and beautiful way. The Bible talks about that. He sings songs over us, you know, on and on and on and on. He has given you specific gifts. He has given you a specific experience in life, and he desires that you would use the gifts that he has given you and the experiences that he allowed you to go through for his glory. But instead, what you have done, what some of us have done, what your haters have done is that they have not come to grips with what God has put in them, and they have desired what God has put in you, and because they don't have that which God has put in you, they have used you as a source of mockery and of criticism. Uh, Your haters, they will say much more about them than about you. Okay, so when I have haters, I have haters everywhere. 
It's just like, it's more about them than it is about me. And there may be there a root of jealousy, all right, of desiring to be in a place that God has never called them to be, of desiring to have certain gifts that God has never given to them, instead of just enjoying and owning that which God has given to them and not to me. So if you are bitter, combative towards a particular person, you should ask this question. Am I envying something in them that God has not given to me? Why? Because otherwise, why are you acting that way? (laughs) And if people are acting that way to you, you must, must assume this, and therefore, do not give them more power than they ought to have in your life. Thirdly, or fourthly, now here's the, the fourth hurdle, the attacks of the enemy. Because every time that God is doing some work in us and through us, there's always opposition. And the passage there uh, is an example of that. And what's interesting in that passage of Nehemiah is that, you know, they begin with the questioning. They begin with the mockery, but they don't stop. See, the haters don't stop with the uh, mockery. They do not stop with uh, the questioning Because they don't stop, see, that's how the devil works. Then he uses people who already have a specific bias, who have roots of jealousy in their heart, and and he begins now to use them to accomplish greater things. Now it becomes physical. And now, and now it becomes very aggressive. That's what's happening to, uh, to uh, the ministry of Nehemiah. So let's go back to the passage there in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. The people worked hard, and we built the walls of Jerusalem halfway up again. With all of the criticism, he still did it. But Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people from the city of Ashrod saw the walls going up, and the halls being repaired, so they became angry and decided to stir up trouble and to fight. Look, it gets physical. And to fight the people of Jerusalem. But we kept on praying, because the best thing you can do in a situation like that is just pray for your persecutors. Jesus talked about that. So we kept on praying to our God, and we also stationed guards day and night. So now his burden, his work has increased. Now he has to have a crew to defend the city and another crew to help build and lift up the walls, right? It becomes very physical. Uh, they begin to be used by the enemy to now tear down that which God is not just to criticize, but now to actually work against it. I remember, I don't know if you remember in, in the 2004 Olympics, the 2004 Olympics, I remember um, uh, the, uh, watching the marathon. And, and I usually don't like to watch the marathon because the marathon is probably the bo- most boring um, sport for you to watch. It's a fun sport for you to be a part of, for you to, for you to be involved in. But, but to watch an mar- uh, Olympic marathon, it's crazy. But I was watching because there was this Brazilian uh, runner that was running the marathon. And, and I remember, I think it was, it was mile seven or mile eight, as he was approaching mile seven, mile eight, this happened. Remember this? There was a guy that jumped in from the crowd and hugged him and tackled him and, you know, kept him from running the race. And there were, you know, all these other runners running past him. I think he lost maybe a couple minutes. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was a minute. I don't remember. It just felt like an eternity when that was happening. It's like, what's going on? Somebody going to do something for this man here? But that happened. And, and if this could be a meme of your life, okay, you can write certain names here on this picture, all right? Because there are people like that. And there will be people like that. You're trying to run towards the goal, and they are tackling you, and it's the work and attack of the enemy that happens 
in your life. And when that happens, I think you, you should not completely be discouraged, but you should understand and try to see and be, and be reminded of uh, the uh, benefits of the hurdles that are part of this race, which is the Christian life. There's some benefits to it. Let me just go real quickly. There's two. Uh, first, confirmation, right? Because uh, if there is no work of God being done, there's no opposition. The minute that you begin to experience opposition, it's an indication that God is at work. So your haters and your critics and the attacks of the enemy, they serve a good purpose because they tell you, oh, God is actually really doing something here. There's actually something happening going on. You're working on your marriage, for instance. Let's say you're working on your marriage. And you're inviting the Spirit of God into your marriage. And, and, and you know, the Spirit of God is revealing places in your life that you need to repent and, and to confess. And, and forgiveness needs to be extended. And you're doing all the work. You're spending money. And you're going to counseling. As things begin to progress, man, you think that the devil likes that? He begins to send people. He begins to, you know, do his attacks in your life, in your marriage, take things back. And you can say, ah, I'm not going to work on this anymore. No, no, no. Keep on going because that's a confirmation that God is working in you and through you. There's a reason for praise when opposition happens and takes place. When were the Christians most persecuted? Think about this. Look at Christian history. When were the Christians more persecuted? Please don't say in the last couple decades. Please don't say that. It has happened in the first three centuries when the church was advancing the most. So it's parallel. It's a confirmation. But then secondly, it's practice. It's practice for the type of woman and man that God wants you to become for the character that he wants to bring out of you. He knows more than you do that there's more in you than you think. He knows that you can go further than you have believed and others have told you. He knows the gifts that he has placed in you. He knows the opportunities. He believes in you. Sometimes even when we fail to believe in God and we doubt his presence, he still believes in us. And that's so encouraging. He knows. He knows you. He has formed you. Uh, Psalm 139 talks about that. Every single cell he put in together, your life is set before him. He knows everything about you. And therefore, he allows these hurdles to take place and to be in front of you in your life. He allows that because that's training for you. You know, think about this. So uh, I, uh, I, I do this fitness class with my coach here, Maggie, and, and some athletes, that, some fighters that are athletes. And, you know, she always puts, uh, um, uh, you know, hurdles for us to do things like, you know, bands around our waist as you're trying to run forward and, you know, um, obstacles for you to jump. But, but think about that. What, is the, what do those things accomplish? It allows you to perform the movement with more perfection once those ob obstacles or once those hurdles are removed. Think about that. You know, the hurdles in your race are purposely placed there by God so that as you move through them, jump over them over and over and over again, you become a more skilled and a better runner able to help others as well. 
See, the Apostle Paul knew that. Later on, he writes this in Romans 5. Look what he writes in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now replace the word sufferings there for hurdles. We rejoice in our hurdles knowing that the hurdles or suffering produces endurance. Ah. And endurance produces what? Character. And character produces hope. And what, mean, what, what this means is this, is that if there were no sufferings, there would be no hope. That if there were no sufferings, there would be no endurance. And if there was no endurance, there was no character. And so God allows these things for your own good. He's not the cause of these things, but he allows you to face life this way because he is... Be making you more and more like Christ. He is bringing you closer and closer towards the prize and towards the goal, which is Christ. So that's the benefit of the hurdles. See him as benefits in your life. And I remember in seminary, I, I had a professor that he taught uh, theology, and he taught on, uh, he was teaching in a specific semester on the doctrine of sanctification. It's interesting. What, is, what does that mean? Sanctification means the work that God is doing in you so that you become more and more like Christ every day. That's, that's what that doctrine means. And um, I remember, um, you know, turning in uh, a late paper to him uh, past the deadline, and, and I gave some excuse, I don't know, maybe some lame excuses, you know, like, yeah. I, pull, I pulled the ESL card, okay? I, I basically said, you know, like, I'm Esau, and it takes four times the amount of time for me to write a paper, then this white friend of mine right here, um, and he didn't care, and he, he basically said, no, you're still going to get a lower grade, and trust me, it is for your sanctification, So, <laughs> the haters in your life, everything, all the obstacles, all the hurdles, you go to God and you say, remove this person from my life. God says, it's for your own sanctification. <laughs> it's for your sanctification. So, how do we, how do we um, overcome these hurdles? How do we get past these hurdles? Three things. Number one, we need friends. We need friends that show up to fight for us. We need friends that have our back. You know, I, I love how in verse 23, as Paul is being cornered, what's happening here is uh, the Jews in Damascus are angry at what he is doing now, his ministry to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And, and they found that the only way to really stop him, because the only way to stop somebody that is filled with the Spirit, fulfilling the calling of God in their lives is to really take their lives away. And so he is there in uh, this house, I think maybe, a, maybe an apartment, a house or whatever. I think it's in a, on a higher floor because of what the text says, maybe in the second floor of this house. And they had placed assassins at the gate of the city. And what they were thinking is on his way out, you know, see, basically back in those days, if you committed any crime or any murder inside the city gates, you know, things got really complicated um, because there were laws and, and et cetera. But once you left the gates of the city, 
back in those days, this was the wild, wild west. You know, pretty much anything could happen. And so they were just waiting for him to leave so that these assassins could come behind him and kill him. And he found out that that's what they wanted to do as he was thinking about, I need to go back to Jerusalem. So he stayed home because he was fearing for his life. He was cornered. And what the text tells us is these disciples of Paul show, show up. Uh, he had been preaching the gospel for three years, so by then he already had some, some disciples. And, and they show up. And what do they do? Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night, waited until at night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. What did they do? They opened a hole in the wall and lowered him through there already on the outside of the city so that he can start his journey towards Jerusalem. They opened a hole in the wall. I was thinking about this. See, this is the quality of friends that we need in our lives. This is the quality of friends we need to be for others. We need to be willing and we need to have people in our lives that are willing to carve holes in walls to let us through. Now, there are some people that have carved holes in you. <laughs> and you have some people like that carving holes in you. There are people carving holes in the community, in the church. But what we need is people carving out holes and walls to let us through, going out of their way, bending themselves backwards, sacrificing themselves, putting their neck out there for you. You need this because you cannot make it in the Christian life unless you have people like that. And many of you are sitting here saying, I don't have anybody like that. Well, here's how it starts. Become somebody like that for somebody else. When was the last time that you put your neck out there for somebody? When was the last time out there that you bent yourself backwards to help somebody? When was the last time that you were fighting to preserve life, to repair relationships, instead of being the cause of all of those things, being divisive? Like, you need people like that in your life. We need to be people like that for others as well. People that are willing to carve out holes in the walls so that others can escape and be saved. Secondly, we need fathers and mothers. And, and, and you know, that's why I asked you to read that verse three times, the, that, that word in, in the verse three times as we were reading the passage. Because now Paul is like, oh man, I... I almost lost my life, and now he gets to Jerusalem, and he's probably thinking, oh, man, they're the brothers. <laughs> the brothers are all going to re receive me. They're, they're going to love on me, and, and they're going to encourage me. Oh, man, it's this new apostle follower of Jesus. And he gets there, and they begin to criticize him and question his calling. Who, you? You had that vision on the road? That's, pff, bro, what were you smoking or drinking? I mean, like, what's going on? That. That can't be credible, a credible way of Jesus authenticating your ministry. Like, that's, what, what proof do you have of that? You see what I'm saying? They begin now to question his calling. They begin to question his ministry. And now he is completely discouraged, I would imagine, because if that happened to me, I would be crushed. Say, like, man, I'm suffering for Jesus here. I'm like putting my life and my neck out there every day. And then I come here to the leaders of the church, and they're questioning my calling. And as he is in that place, but Barnabas, but Barnabas, who we learn about in the beginning of Acts of the Apostles as a man who was known as the son of consolation, who had the gift of encouragement, who was a true shepherd that sees 
Saul, Paul in his need, sees him in his distress and comes towards him and puts his arms around him and brings him back to the other apostles and validates his calling. Look at what he says in verse 27. Uh, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He says, listen, guys, you guys are questioning this man. I, I was not there on the road, but I heard of his testimony, and I seen the fruit of his ministry in Arabia. He's legit. You better welcome him in. And welcomes him in to the fellowship of the other apostles, where he now then is sent to proclaim the gospel in other cities. And, 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 and because of that, like it's beautiful, because of that, he goes back. What do we read in verse 28? So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. It energizes him. It re-energizes him. It gives him new power in his life. He is back doing the work that God had called him to do. And as a result, in verse 31, the church in the region, Samaria, Judea, Galilee, now is being built up and thriving and growing and people are coming to faith. What if there was no Barnabas in Paul's life? What would have happened See, you need Barnabases. And by the way, there are female and male Barnabases in the church. Let me just say that. And you need to be a Barnabas to somebody else because, quite frankly, every single one of us is, in a, is going at a different pace, is, is, is in a different mile of this race, and there's always people ahead of you, and there's always people behind you. And you must look at those who are in front of you, and you must say, hey, would you exercise this Barnabas ministry in my life? And, and will you look behind and say, this person and that person, they need some sort of Barnabas. I am not like a great Barnabas, but I want to try to be, and I'm going to ask them if they want that type of ministry in their lives. But here's the problem. The problem sometimes is pride is sin, is that we don't want to be shepherd. One of the main problems that sometimes I find as being a pastor for 23 years is there's all these people that like the church. They like the programs the church have to offer. But when it comes to being shepherded and led, they don't want to be led and shepherded. They want to lead themselves. You need the humility to come under somebody's shepherding. And if you can't come under your pastor's shepherding, find somebody else that you can come under. But you cannot live a Christian life on your own, refusing to be led and shepherded by the people that God has placed around you. Which goes back to the hurdle of sin in the first place, of pride. And sometimes we're so busy in, in, with ourselves, so concerned with ourselves, that we can't see the others that are behind that need that same ministry as well. So we all need fathers and mothers, and we all need to be fathers and mothers to others as well, like Barnabas's to others in the context of the church. But then lastly, we need Jesus. You need a Savior. You know why? Because even the best of friends, even the best of fathers and mothers in the faith, they, they're not your saviors, <laughs> And many of you have confused a friend or a shepherd for a savior. And that's why you've been hurt and disappointed through the years is because you put too much hope in that person. And you were too disappointed when that person failed or failed you. And you were hurt and you can't get past that. It's because you gave them the glory that only God deserves. You looked at them for hope in a way that only you should look to God for hope and salvation. And 
you need Jesus not only because your friends and your fathers and mothers eventually at some point in time will fail you because they're sinners like you are, but you need Jesus in order to become the father and mother and to become the friend that others need as well. That without Jesus, you can never become that friend. That without Jesus, you can never become that father or that mother. Why? Because uh, Jesus is the friend that our hearts truly long for. He is the friend that will always have our back. Not sometimes, but always have your back. Have you forgotten how when we were cornered by sin and by hell and by the devil, that God opened a hole in the fabrics of the universe and he lowered his son to save us? Have you forgotten that? That when we were cornered, there was no hope in darkness There was a hole open from heaven to earth, a new portal where his son comes down to rescue us for our sakes. And he comes and he runs this race for us and he he jumps the impossible obstacles that were in front of us, death, hell, so that we would overcome them when it comes our day. Have you forgotten that Jesus is God with us. He is the perfect and ultimate Barnabas, who when he ascended to heaven, he left the Holy Spirit as the encourager and as the counselor, not next to us, but inside of us, to walk us through the obstacles and the hurdles of life. He said, I will not leave you orphans, and he hasn't. And it's to the degree that you understand the friend and the, and the father and, and, that you, and, the, and the, the, the parent that you have in God and the consoler and the encourager that you have in the spirit that, that you begin to be built up to be that friend and, and that father and mother for others because one of the things that we say, I'm not going to be this type of friend because I'm not going to carve a hole in the wall for them because they have never done that for me. But then Jesus comes and says, but I've done that for you. Remember? And maybe you're in a place right here today that you are discouraged because you do feel alone. You feel that the the race is bearing on you and it's hard and there's all these obstacles. You don't know how you're going to make it. You're looking 10 miles out and there's hurdles all the way there. A straight line. And you're like, how am I going to make it? And I want you to know that Jesus, the friend the one who ushers in the presence of the Father and the one who ushers in the presence of the Spirit is here today. And he's saying, I can be that friend for you today. You may not have anybody in your life right now, but I can be that for you today. I can be that friend. I can be that guide. I can be the encourager that you need so that you can continue on this race, so that you don't quit the race, but not only that, but that you would finish it well. And our, our posture here today is just really just allow the Spirit to, to do its work in us uh, to remove especially the obstacle of sin and pride in our lives so that he can minister to us. And he will do that through some of the most unexpected people that you never thought that God could use them to minister to you. And he will because he's just that type of God. He just blows our mind away. But I'm telling you, he's here. He wants to minister to you. So will you bow your heads and will you pray with me?